This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Highball Politics, what Americans' bartenders are hearing. I'm David Kochel. And I'm Rob Stutzman. Each week, David and I are interviewing a bartender in a different U.S. city and state to find out what people there really care about when it comes to politics and culture. Why bartenders? Because bartenders have the pulse of their patrons and therefore the pulse of America, real America. In every episode, we will feature some incredible cocktail recipes, which you can find in the show notes. If you're a bartender or if you'd like to nominate your favorite bartender to be on our podcast, please email us at highballpolitics at gmail.com. Today we're talking with a bartender who goes by the handle at Supper Club Guy on Instagram and bartends at Johnny Manhattan's in Richfield, Wisconsin. But before we chat with the mysterious Supper Club Guy, let's talk just for a minute about how the show is a little bit different this week. Full disclosure, Supper Club Guy comes out of the business. He has worked in politics. He's a political communicator. So we're going to get into the debate a little bit. We're going to talk real politics from a person who not only sits behind the bar and is a good observer of culture in Wisconsin, but also someone who really knows what he's talking about. I'm excited for this episode. So let's get to it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So let's bring on our guest, Supper Club Guy from Johnny Manhattan, Richfield, Wisconsin, which is part of the Milwaukee suburbs. Club Guy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here with you guys. We had a pretty big week in Milwaukee. What is a supper club for those who are unindoctrinated into this new concept? A supper club is, a, I would describe it as a Wisconsin cultural phenomenon, really. We're talking about, you know, a classy but casual steakhouse, very rustic, rural restaurant. There's some in Milwaukee. They're all over kind of small towns across Wisconsin. Every Wisconsin town has its favorite supper club. You can go find a map of all of them across Wisconsin. They look very much like bars and steakhouses. The menu is a very classic, you know, not going to surprise you. On Friday, there's a fish fry. On Saturday, there's a prime rib. You can pretty much get a steak all the time. A lot of places do good Italian entrees as well, you know, like a chicken parmesan, a fettuccine Alfredo. The supper club tradition is really about, you know, the bar and and showing up with your friends before dinner, having a couple drinks at dinner. Kachel, you know, you, we were at five o'clock yesterday in downtown Milwaukee. Beautiful bar where you just go and get kind of, you kind of just get hammered before dinner, really. Uh, you peruse <laughs> the menu while you throw back a couple cocktails with your friends, then you go have dinner. And, and then the, in true supper club tradition, you got to go back to the bar after dinner. Are these private clubs or are they open to the public? They're open to the public. They're just, you know, okay. It's like any sort of restaurant you're in your hometown. I will say, though, and, and bartending at one, too, you know this, like you have a clientele, you have repeat customers. 
And especially like when you, you know, even just being in a bar once or twice a week, working somewhere, you start to see your regulars all the time. And all these supper clubs have a core base from their community that basically keeps them alive for sure. And, you know, tourist season brings in new people. You can go up to Ishnala up in the Wisconsin Dells, which is probably one of the most well-known supper clubs because it's in the Dells. It's kind of a tradition, but it's the same thing. All these supper clubs, you open up at four o'clock, people kind of stroll in and off the golf course. They want to have a couple cocktails. They want to have dinner. It's kind of funny too, because as you'd imagine, people who eat dinner at four o'clock, a little older than some of the people on this call, a little older than David Cottrell, obviously. Just a little, uh, not much. Just, just a little. I mean, not, not <laughs> so it's kind of it's fun too, from like a you know, because these places are open from four to five, or from four to five, you're busy with that first rush, and then from five to six, you're often like, why? I mean, why are we open? Like it's it's five thirty, no one's. But it's because of that first rush of people. And Ishnala that I talked about, they open up at 3.30. It's packed. So you got you go there at 3.30, you got an hour and a half wait before dinner. But you got a nice bar, a couple nights. There's three bars in that restaurant. So that's what so, they do it right. So I, even the name of your place, Johnny Manhattan, yeah. which just screams casual yet classy. Exactly. Um, uh, Johnny, Johnny Manhattan's, paint a picture for us. What's the vibe in there? Tell us about the locals, the whole kit and control. Totally. It's classy but casual, and it's up in the far, far northwest suburbs of Milwaukee. It almost stems uh, into a more rural, like Richfield's a pretty rural area. It's near a bunch of larger suburbs like Germantown and Mononymy Falls that are, you know, just a little bit bigger. And so they really take people from everywhere. It's an Italian steakhouse in the sense that there's a lot of nice Italian entrees on the menu, an impressive wine list. The bar is beautiful. It seats approximately 30 individuals at the bar because it's a pretty long one. And just like most supper clubs, we have a lot of people come in right at 4 o'clock. They want to kind of pregame dinner. A lot of people come sit down after they've had drinks or after they've had dinner for more drinks. We do a number of kind of classic supper club cocktails, the Wisconsin Old Fashioned, which we can get into as well. None of you people are from Wisconsin probably, so you haven't heard probably of a grasshopper. A grasshopper is basically a boozy mint chocolate chip milkshake. Um, people love it. <laughs> kind of the signature cocktail at Johnny Manhattan's. Again, all these supper clubs kind of do the same cocktails. Some put their own spin on it. But they yeah. do this thing called the Johnny Manhattan. So it's a large ice cube. It's a nice two-ounce pour, which is going to be a good hefty amount of bourbon or, or Corbel brandy, depending on what you want. And then they add the Luxardo cherry juice, which is that very dark you know, cherry juice from the Luxardo cherries. And then we do a Luxardo liqueur on top of it. It's pretty much all booze. And again, people love that drink. I think it originated from the owner. He kind of invented it 20 years ago and he, he, he passed away, but his wife, Nancy, still runs the restaurant to this day. You throw Luxardo instead of the vermouth, basically. Yeah, it basically. Yeah. yeah Cause a classic yeah. Manhattan, obviously, and let's for the record, you know, since we're talking about Manhattan's very serious drinkers drink Manhattan's, right? Cause it is just, right. I mean, well, anybody comes in, they got a customized Manhattan. You just know that that person likes to throw back a couple drinks because that's just straight booze. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm well known on this podcast for having a big time sweet tooth. So that sounds very appealing to me, but we got to get to the real fireworks and the real controversy here okay. because I mean, the first cocktail that I think we had as the signature cocktail on this podcast was a version of an old fashioned. We've had several old fashions. And if you haven't been to Wisconsin, in fact, I was at the debate last night with a person who ordered an old fashioned at, I think the Capitol grill. And the person said, sweet or sour. And my friend I was sitting with at the debate said, I ordered sweet. And I was like, oh, I know what that is. Cause I just had one about an hour ago. So you guys do a totally different old fashioned. It almost feels like 
blasphemy to me, a little bit of heresy. Why don't you take us through the signature cocktail and then explain the three different kind of versions of the Wisconsin Old Fashioned? Because this is a totally different spin on how to do this cocktail. Cocktail's exactly right. Where you order an Old Fashioned in Wisconsin, you will immediately get that question, you know, sweet, sour, whatever. I'll get into that in a second. But a classic Old Fashioned in Wisconsin versus, you know, the the old, old old-fashioned, the way it was made in Prohibition era, is a muddled slice of orange and a muddled maraschino cherry. You really got want to have that fake, I call it the chemical cherries, right? You really want that fake chemical juice muddled into your drink with some sugar. And sometimes you can do simple syrup. Uh, A lot of places do that too, but also just a sugar cube. And then you throw in your bitters and you mix that up. So you've kind of mixed, you've muddled this like kind of like flavor base for the drink. Then you pour your alcohol on top, and and oftentimes it's a brandy sweet. Brandy, which is what people want in their old-fashioned. I, I more prefer a bourbon, but so you want a brandy sweet. So then you top it with brandy, and you top it with Sprite, and that Sprite is kind of like they call it a floater. It really brings the whole drink together. Now, people who like the classic old-fashioned, like, why would you put all that stuff in my drink? And I would counter. I said, you know, this is Wisconsin. You need a drink with what I would call a high slammability factor. Um, you know, a mil- like a Miller Lite, you can throw that back, right? And a Wisconsin Old Fashioned, you really can't. You can toss it back because it's got Sprite in there. It's got all that stuff in it, you know, and it tastes delicious. It tastes delicious. Now, I think if you don't want it as sweet, you get it as a press, which is a little Sprite and soda. I know, Cotchell, that's how I had you order it the other day. And that will cut back on your sugar, which is great. And then you can also get it sour, which will throw some squirt in there, too. So you can get it sweet, pressed, or sour with squirt. I've had people, though, people like, oh, just throw some water in there. You know, so it's our version. It's the Wisconsin version. It is very important to culture. I think people love it and um, they enjoy them. Any restaurant, any supper club, it's probably the the drink that is made the most, regardless of what's on the cocktail menu. There's part of me that just thinks like, you know, Manhattan might sue in order to get Manhattan's name back off of a, a place that <laughs> makes a cocktail like that. Actually, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's crowdsourced, right? Somewhere culture decided, yeah, you know, I want a little Sprite in my whiskey drink. Or turn into a brandy drink, which is to me the biggest blasphemy. But so oh, and brandy, it, and and oftentimes it is Corbell. People want Corbell. They got to have Corbell in their brandy sweet or whatever. And and I'm more of a bourbon guy, so I get mine. I do mine like a maker's press because I love bourbon more than brandy. And I think press gets you a, a really good just kind of balance. It's not overly sweet, but you still want a little sweetness because at the end of the day, there's soda in this drink. The way it's built, it needs to taste sweet in, a, in some capacity. Let's move on from cocktails. Let's get the people. Sure. Wisconsin truly could pick the next president, right? This yeah, is I would, yeah, and I would say- As swingy a state as there is in, in the country. Yep. You're in the suburbs, yep. uh, so I assume your patrons are. Tell us about who they are. You know, what, what do they look like? What are their ages? Is there diversity? And what really, what are they doing for a living? And what are they talking about right now? So I want to just preface this with the Milwaukee suburbs. The Milwaukee suburbs have always notoriously- leaned a little more conservative and a little more Republican. You know, you hear the wow counties, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington, and I and this restaurant in particular one's in Washington. It's a very, like, heavy Republican lean of a suburb, but it's changing, and that realignment that we talk about or you guys talk about as the political guys is happening. It's very much happening, and so you have a lot of suburbanites. I'd say, you know, our clientele, they're probably, most of them, the younger side is probably in their 30s. We don't really have too many younger folks really come in. It's, you know, supper clubs are kind of old school, but, you know, we also have a lot of old retirees, but also people who work in kind of, you know, white collar jobs, but also we got a lot, you know, we get some blue collar bikers too. So you really get a huge mix of people kind of from all like walks of non-urban life, I would say for the, for the most part. 
I would say like the supper club voter, the supper club person walking into that restaurant is the one who's going to really decide the restaurant. I mean, decide the election. They're kind of upper scale voters, right? Like we, we try to go to Mount for drinks and food. You're not walking in there if you're, you know, you're only making 30,000 a year for the most part. You're, you know, you're making your upper middle class for sure. You probably voted for Scott Walker heavily. You voted for Ron Johnson heavily. And you're probably a little bit not as hot on Donald Trump. And we saw that in 2016 when Ted Cruz beat Trump. Washington County was a county where Cruz beat him, you know. The issues people focus on, it is the economy. And I was telling David, you know, last night or the other day, if you're a Democrat, you can't just walk into next year and assume you got this locked up because people are upset with Biden, whether it's because he's too old or he just doesn't seem with it or he doesn't seem to care. The Democrats have a huge problem on that regard because they're seen as almost just out, they're just out of touch for all the reasons that you would see with Joe Biden. But these voters, even if they, you know, kind of don't like Trump, they also don't like far left crazy policies that are going to raise their taxes. So you got a lot of people, all these people own homes, right? So property tax is important. A lot of them probably drive to work. So gas prices are super important. And that's what you hear. You hear people talk gas prices, price of food, jobs, economy. They don't have nice things to say about Joe Biden. That's usually what right. I hear the most. If politics this, is brought up. This is kind of the heart of that group of people. You know, 70 plus percent of the country do not want to see a rematch between Biden and Trump. And I'll bet a lot of them are sitting right there in these wild counties. They just, they don't like anything that's going on in politics right now. Maybe they voted for Trump in 2016 because they couldn't stand Hillary. By the time we get to 2020, they're kind of tired of it all and exhausted by his dominance. And they probably went with Biden. And so Wisconsin is really going to be that place where, you know, if we get Biden and Trump again, which, kind of, you know, that seems where it's headed. Are these guys going to turn out? Are they like, or, or just, are they sick of it all? What's going to happen? If we get to November with the same race, what are we now, looking at? Demographically, these are people who are very engaged in their community and will vote. I think they, they do show up. The question is, you know, will they not vote in the presidential race and maybe vote down ballot? I think you could see something like that happening. If you're a Republican and you want to win Wisconsin, you have to maximize your numbers in these communities. So winning Washington County with 60% of the vote would actually be a historical underperformance for a Republican, you know? And and again, you have a lot of voters, upper scale voters. They zoom into work a lot or they commute downtown in a nice job downtown. It's hard to say if Trump's going to be able to make the case that he made in 2016. I think a big role was, I mean, Hillary was just an unacceptable candidate and she had a lot of didn't downside. show up in Wisconsin. By and the way. she didn't she show I mean, never made it. Yeah. And just, I, well, there's also one time she came during the primary when she was running against Bernie and she poured a beer and it just was an epic disaster. Yeah. It was the talk of the town, talk of the town for like a week and a half. So, so, so explain this to us because last week we talked about the Iowa fair. We talked about the yeah. do's and don'ts and these, you know, like don't eat the corn dog and don't want hassle loafers like Fred Thompson did to the fair. So yeah. tell us though about this, about how she hurt herself because she didn't know how to do a correct pour. Yeah, I mean she she poured the beer like she's never poured a beer before, and you really want it, you want it kind probably of true glass, yeah. and you may need to sometimes depending on the the type of kegerator system you're dealing with, you may need to half cock the lever to pour the beer and get it out at a good level so there's not too much foam. You also can't hold the glass straight up like you're filling up a water glass right. at a faucet, you know? And if you don't know what beer you're pouring, I mean, there's just all these things. And obviously, you know, she's also probably never been to a grocery store, so this is all new to her. And I think the other thing that we saw in 2016 is people just hate being bandered to. And it's like, who is this woman who probably doesn't even drink beer? She's no, up in the, in the pantsuit trying to pour what? beer. It's like, it's like, get she's on. A, she's, a, a she's a Ron Bauer Chardonnay 
Chardonnay girl, you for sure. Totally. Well, yeah, we know she's hammering that stuff. People like Chardonnay, you know. Can you, just, can you just imagine what Bill was thinking, though? Oh, baby, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to pour a beer. Now, versus Ron Johnson in 2016, who made Barstool Sports for getting a, a Tavern League endorsement and then slamming a beer in approximately seven seconds and making nationwide TV and coverage and local TV, which was more important, you know. I'm not saying it's, you know, you got it, but like clearly that man had a beer before because you don't just, right. you know, as quickly as that got choked down. Club guy, you know, obviously you're a pro, you've been around the politics game. A lot of these things are just cultural signifiers. So we're going to get to the debate because the debate was last night. I was in the audience. It was very interesting. We got a lot to talk about there, but let me ask you this. Do you think Vivek Ramaswamy could pour a beer properly? No, but I think, but, but I don't think he would try. I don't think he would try. So he would know better. He'd, yes. He'd stay out of yes. that sticky wicket. Yes. He just wouldn't. He would not, he would not give it a try. And he would be on it. And, and I think in smart, probably he would say, yeah, I don't know how to do that. I'm not going to. If he tried, I don't know if it would go well for him. You know? Yeah. I, I, I might not been the answer you're looking for, but that's what I think. I don't think he would try. So debate, Kachel, you were there in the audience last night. Club guy, were you there? I was at more of a th like a think tank watch party. So all right, so you watched it on TV with other yeah. people. Think tank implies that these might be smart people, but sometimes that's just an implication, not always true. Correct. I watched it on TV, as did you know, how many millions that watch. I don't think as of this recording, we don't know the number yet. It can be a different experience, right, being in the yep. hall, Kachel, than watch it on TV. So yeah. Kachel, since you were live, and I, we, we got to be careful not to go too deep in all this. I mean, let's just kind of give the quick rundown on your impressions from inside the hall on it. Yeah, a lot of energy in the room. People were excited to be there. I've never been in a debate audience before. I've always been back in the green room with my candidate and watching from back there and sending out the snappy tweets. Clearly, Chris Christie, when he kind of tried to come off the top rope on Donald Trump, got the full boo and really kind of stopped him from being able to prosecute the case. People did not want to hear anything negative about Donald Trump in that room. That just comes through very clearly, and it definitely set a dynamic for everybody else. I thought that Vivek certainly got his points across and was very feisty with everybody. He was getting hammered from all sides, and he was hammering back. The one time that I thought he got shut down pretty good was when Nikki Haley started dealing it on him about Putin, and she got literally a standing ovation out of about a third of the audience. And he actually got shut down from that. You know, it was kind of messy. It was a little bit of a shit show at times, but my impression was a lot of energy, but then the overhanging over all of it was Donald Trump and whether or not maybe it was a good night for him and not for really anybody else. We'll kind of see where the voters kind of lead us on that answer, but I got to think that he was probably not disappointed with how that debate went. So Club Guy, you were with other Wisconsinites, right? Yep. Or were there you know, tons okay. of Wisconsin? Right. It was all all kind of, you know, southeastern Wisconsin, a lot of Wow County people. So those are the walk by, those are all the suburbs. You said think tanks, so that makes me think they're probably college educated Ton. voters. Yeah. All right. Well, so what was the vibe in that watch party? So this is a lot of people who I think personally were really hopeful for like a Tim Scott to do very well and have a shining moment. You know, he's, I just didn't think he did too much. He was almost not present at the debate for the most part. And I think it was almost to the disappointment of the crowd. And that's kind of the crowd I was with. Right. So maybe that what Koch was describing, like the Christie prosecution of Trump probably fell on friendlier ears where I was sitting because that's the type of people that were at this place. 
Um, but otherwise, it was kind of split between Haley and DeSantis as to people liked uh, both things that those two said. You know, I would argue that Vivek probably did well with people who weren't watching at that bar at this watch party. He was not liked with this same group of people. People really appreciated both Christie's chat GPT comment yeah. and then Haley kind of taking him to task on foreign policy. Especially you think of the think tank world. I mean, these are people who are very informed about what's going on day to day. And rightfully so, they expect the next leader of the free world to as well. So, you know, Vivek kind of not grasping the foreign policy stuff for the the audience that I was watching with was just not a, a, a almost not a, basically a non-starter, I would say. So let me ask you guys this, because you're both professionals that have observed this. I woke up this morning thinking about Pence really tangling with Vivek, right? You could tell that. Some of that was strategic, and I think truly Pence just finds Vivek deeply offensive. Yeah. Do, any of you, do either of you find it ironic that Mike Pence took deep offense from a guy performing hysteronics in a bright red tie with kind of surreal hair that, according to Pence, would need on-the-job training, and this isn't the time for that? I mean, it's are like, you, Mike, you Mike what a lack of self-awareness, dude. <laughs> yeah, look, no, you, you're absolutely right. I found it fascinating that Mike Pence, like, could get so animated and so, like, Vivek upsets him so much. Let me pull back the curtain a little bit because I was there, obviously, in the room watching what was going on off camera and seeing what was happening during breaks. And, yeah. I, and it's always really important because, you know, what happens between those breaks if you're observing it in sort of the context that we understand politics and the dynamics in a room like that, you can learn a lot about what people think. Vivek took off and left the stage during every single break. He disappeared. And then he came back on at the 32nd mark, went to his podium and was living. He was clearly the least popular person on that stage. Nobody wanted to talk to him. He stayed for the last break, but kind of got into it with Christie, where there was some kind of pointing back and forth. He couldn't make out where they're saying to each other. But there was some tension. The stuff that was going on between Vivek and the other candidates was real. That was felt emotionally. And, you know, nobody liked him on that stage. Now, if you're Vivek and one of his consultants, you love that. You love that because, you know, these are all politicians standing around him. And he's the only one up there saying things that doesn't sound like a politician. And you figure that's the sweet spot in the Republican Party right now. That was an interesting dynamic for me to watch. But I would think that this morning, Vivek kind of woke up and thought, yep, I was the man on that stage. And, you know, I got into it with everybody and I held my own and I did what I wanted. I would agree with that. I think he did. You know, if you're him, he is in a better spot today than he was two days ago. I think that's true. And that's actually people asking kind of how the debate went. I think for different reasons, you can say Vivek won, Haley won, and DeSantis won, because I would say all three of those candidates were better off this morning than they were two, three days ago. And that's kind of the more political hat as far as like where people actually are. I do think a lot of Vivek support comes from people who don't pay attention to politics all the time. They're kind of intrigued by the whole... I mean, people hate people from government at this point and people who have like almost experience in a lot of ways can be a downside because people want the outsider. They want somebody who, you know, understands their life and their life is not in politics. And so I think people will give him a break, especially on, on not knowing the foreign policy. That's why I think where I was watching that debate, you know, yeah, the room didn't like him, but I'd like to hear what people this weekend have to say at the bar, like if anyone watched them, right? And like, 
what did they have to say? Because that's yeah. going to be a little more telling. As we, to, yeah, we might need to have you back for a little report on on that. Yeah, what Bard talk oh. is Vivek is only running for one thing, and that is to be on the ticket with the man of which he emulates and is apparently a sycophant of Donald mm-hmm. J. Trump. I mean, I guess if that's the objective to ingratiate himself to Trump while still speaking MAGA fluently and you know inflaming the base, the MAGA base, then. He had a successful night, but do either one of you really think this is a cat that is going to end up in the head-to-head on Super Tuesday with Donald Trump? No, I don't yeah. think so. You know, look, we we saw the Des Moines Register Iowa poll came out on Monday. It had Trump at forty-two, DeSantis at nineteen. Nobody else was in double digits, and Vivek was running a point behind Chris Christie, yeah. who has shown his sort of open disdain for Iowa and the Iowa caucuses, and says he's not coming to. So, like, you can't be losing to Chris Christie in the Iowa poll if you're Vivek Ramaswamy and you're the new kind of hot thing nationally. I think he's a media creation. I think it's a lot of internet polls that, you know, can be rigged, and he's very online type of candidate. But in voter world, particularly in the Iowa caucuses, it's just not going to happen. It, look, if evangelical Republicans in Iowa, who are the dominant voter group in Iowa, had trouble with the Mormon candidate, they're not going to warm up to a person who's Hindu. You know, it just, it just it makes no sense. I'm here to tell the truth. I think an Iowa caucus goer too, I mean, these people, like, I joke, because I've lived in Iowa for a while and David knows that, you know, it's like, I mean, they want to, like, sit here and, like, touch these candidates and, like, feel their face and be like, who are you? Like, all these things about you. And, like, it's like a long-term decision they make. They truly take, like, a year to be like, who am I going to caucus for? So we'll see, you know, where he stands. I don't, you know, I think people like him right now. But you're right. Is he tested? Is he seen as someone who can carry the mantle? And yeah, he's an outsider. I think that's his best benefit. You know, he doesn't come off as like he hasn't had political office before. You know, I think what people liked about Trump is that, you know, he was a businessman. He built things. And Vivek hasn't necessarily told that story yet the way I think Trump has been able to tell it. Let's take advantage of Club Guy's uh, Wisconsin knowledge here because, you know, whoever wins 24, very well it could be Wisconsin. Really, the sense from 16, as we've already talked about, is that Trump didn't so much have a power base there, but Hillary was really unacceptable to Wisconsinites and, you know, famously didn't campaign there and lost the election more than Trump won it. You've described to us these suburban voters that really aren't Trumpers at all. But tell us, is there enough rural vote that Trump can ignite? in a turnout type election to carry the state in 24. Knowing what I know about Wisconsin, I think that is difficult for a couple of reasons. You know, Wisconsin is very different from Iowa, right? Iowa has Des Moines and Iowa City, you know, Waterloo or whatever. Wisconsin has Milwaukee and Madison. And Madison, I mean, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful city. It's great. It's awesome. A lot of people live there. A lot of upper class urbanites who are the true new Democrat voter, I would argue. I mean, it is like the capital of that. It's the state capital, but it's also the capital of that type of voter. The left, you, yeah. Yeah, and so if you see this, you know, there's a lot of healthcare workers there. There's a whole UW hospital system, the UW University of Wisconsin. The biggest school is there. The university's there. A lot of government jobs too, obviously, right? And there's just so many votes, and and you see that. There used to be a, a, a rule of thumb. If Waukesha could outvote Madison or match Madison's margin, you know, Waukesha County and Dane County where Madison is, then the Republican can win statewide. We've had to throw that discussion out the window because it's just there's no way you can net the votes in Waukesha now. 
partially because of Dane County growth, but how you Republicans have lost votes in Waukesha. And Wisconsin's rural, but there's not that many new votes to get. And he will continue to rack up these numbers in former Dem strongholds in northwestern Wisconsin and northeastern Wisconsin, you know, which used to be seen as the true battleground. But northeast Wisconsin is almost now more Republican. It's just they have to win so much of it now. You know, we have to really win it. Ron Johnson won Brown County in 2016, I believe, near 60 percent of the vote, you know, and that was to win the race by two or three points. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Johnson, it's worth pointing. Let's, let's just remind people. So Johnson gets reelected in twenty twenty in twenty two, but even at sixteen when he won, he outperformed Trump. Correct. Right. Yeah. So yeah. twenty sixteen, Donald Trump, I think, won Wisconsin by twenty two thousand votes, and Ron Johnson won by approximately ninety thousand. Yeah. The two places where Johnson did Johnson did slightly better than Trump, I think, in northeastern Wisconsin, which is kind of that again very swingy area up there. Mike Gallagher is currently the congressman from up there. So everyone mm-hmm. knows that rising star. He represents that really important part. Yep. You're going to see a lot from him in Wisconsin politics. Gallagher had a really big margin up there, too. Ran unopposed last year. So, again, very in- interesting guy to watch. But where Ron really outperformed Donald Trump, it's not going to surprise you, is in the Milwaukee suburbs. A lot of people live in, in those communities. I mean, there's three large counties. And Kajal would know Dallas County. It's, one of, it's a big suburban county in Iowa. All three of those wow counties are bigger than Dallas, you know. Yeah, so it's a lot of percentage of that vote share. Yeah, yes. if you're t- if you're get- if you're seeing ticket splitters, there's going to be a lot coming from there. Um, I think you saw it too in 2020. If you look at the numbers, Trump underperformed the Republicans running for Congress. There, you know, we're talking ten, maybe a ten to fifteen thousand vote underperformance, but that's the margin. And again, I think the other other thing we haven't thought of, we haven't really talked about, is downtown Milwaukee. We saw this in 2016, and honestly, I think at 5 p.m., we had some. There were some really smart people working Republican politics at that point, and they saw the numbers in Milwaukee, the turnout, and they thought maybe Trump and Tr- Johnson could win, Trump could win, because turnout in Milwaukee is not what it used to be when Barack Obama was running for office. The Democrats do have a problem, and that is working people feel like they have been forgotten about, and working people downtown Milwaukee, city inner cities, feel like that the Democratic Party has ignored them. Biden is playing into that hand. So that's the other dynamic, I think. Hey, real quick, let's back up for just a second back to the debate. We haven't mentioned the name Ron DeSantis. That alone says something. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, he had a lot riding, I think, on last night, given what's gone on in that campaign over the last couple of months. You know, a couple of resets, new campaign manager, some of the donors sort of expressing some concern you guys watching on tv you know in the room it was kind of tough he did he had a lot of fans in that room for sure he was probably the most popular politician up there and probably had the most people in that room on tv what did you guys think did he live up to the billing did he do what he needed to do let's get a let's get a read on him as the guy who is still the you know sort of the second place guy in the race right now i think he woke up today in a better spot than he was on monday absolutely you know, I think a lot of people built up last night as an implosion of DeSantis waiting to happen. And that did not materialize. I think the Trump team rooted for it. You could tell the way they've been kind of, you know, pushing their online message rather effectively. I don't think that reality materialized last night. He relatively had some good answers. I think he got some good, you know, some good nods in the room I was at and sounded like on the debate stage. And a lot of people I've just talked to randomly over the last 12 hours just to get a feel. So, that's where I do put him up as a kind of winner from last night in the sense that he got through it in a, in a relatively positive way and didn't implode. 
we've talked about how, you know, the way to measure candidates in these debates, especially such a large stage, is against the expectation, their own expectations, what we expected of them. So I think he walked away from it fine. You know, there's a whole other deeper level, though, where he, look, he's just odd. That head bob thing, there's a forced smile at the end that felt painful, looked painful. And then he's he, he gives these weaselly politician answers. You want to answer a question? I just do not think this guy's built for it. I don't think his campaign ended last night. In fact, I think uh, he probably helped it to some degree. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I got to think the slide continues. The thing that's interesting to me is, does Vivek pull MAGA voters off of him, which is really what the Trump campaign wants and why, you know, if you're into conspiracies like Vivek and Trump voters might be, you know, is that the, that whole thing is programmed. That Vivek is there to really do damage to DeSantis, which I think is a is a real possibility. Yeah, it it felt a little bit like that. I found it very interesting that he wasn't kind of the pinata in the middle of the debate, like everybody sort of expected. And to me, had he been the person in everyone else's sights getting attacked, and had he acquitted himself well, he would have been a big winner last night. That was his opportunity. But Vivek turned into that person that everyone was dunning for. And probably why he comes out of this debate, you know, love him or hate him, having made the most noise and maybe kind of being part of the headlines. Certainly made the most noise. Look, I do think this, though. Ron DeSantis probably gave the best answer of the night, which was the answer he gave on crime. And he talked about the prosecutors, that he'd done something by removing a couple of prosecutors that were Soros funded. Like for people kind of following the very kind of online sort of messaging of the party around these urban cities and prosecutors and all of that. He hit that one right in the middle of the target. So yeah, I guess. He promised to invade Mexico on day one. Day one, folks. AM's coming off the Bible and we're invading Mexico. The unsolicited advice that we give their campaign is to set a better economic contrast with Joe Biden. I mean, that is what we don't see. They hit some of these online fights. That Soros stuff is an online fight. And look, those people vote in a primary. Like they do, you know, everybody I talk to, you know, nobody's feeling this alleged economic growth that exists. You know, that the Biden administration keeps touting. It's really not being felt. People, you know, if you bought a car recently, you know how expensive it is. Like, and they knew times were better. And so we don't hear a lot of that from him in a way that he could talk about it. That's my unsolicited advice. I think the biggest thing that we, are, I think, was always been missing for the last couple months. Let's shake some cocktails. So, as we know, there's a tradition here to make a couple cocktails, either real or fictitious after famous politicians or well-known politicians from the state. So for Wisconsin, we've chosen the the Senate delegation, which is bipartisan, and not just bipartisan, one very conservative and one very liberal. You have Republican conservative Senator Ron Johnson, Democrat liberal Senator Tammy Baldwin, club guy. What do you got for us? Tammy's the easiest one, I think. She's a lemon drop martini. I make a lemon drop martini for the most part. Lemon vodka, triple sack, simple syrup, lemon juice. You shake it in a martini cocktail shaker. You pour it over some martini glass rimmed in sugar. If you ever had a lemon drop shot, it's basically the same thing. People love it. Cocktails had many, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll make 20 in another. Well, one. It's what? look, it's that, you, you nailed it before. It's that slam factor. It's yeah, the slam, slam factor. factor. There's a, that high slamability factor will go down like butter. And why she's the lemon drop martini, look, I think maybe there's a little sourness to her. Like, she's a liberal. I'm not. But man, does does the swing voter like her? And that is the that is the white women on Instagram, and they love Tammy Baldwin. So she is an easy lemon drop martini. 
I think that's a perfect pairing. Okay, Ron Johnson, what do you got? Ron Johnson, uh, now again, opposite, right? You know, he's just a classic bourbon Manhattan. And in a Manhattan we talked about, very serious drinkers. I mean, this guy slammed a Miller Lite in seven seconds. I still encourage people to go look at this video. It's amazing. But two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of sweet vermouth. I always do a dash of bitters. You don't necessarily have to. Yeah. Um, but I like it because I think it adds a little bit more color, makes the drink a little darker. And then pour it over some rocks. It's a strong drink. It's a tried and true drink. People have been doing it for years. And uh, Ron Johnson's been doing it for years. So, yeah, really two very classic uh, cocktails. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Club Bad knows his way around, not just a bar, but he knows his way around a steak. He's yep. into the re- reverse sear. I've known this for a while. He is a very serious connoisseur of the kind of char you can put on a steak. Well, and red meat is, I th- I think, frankly, very healthy. I think the big drug companies, FDA, have been really trying to tell a story that I think is false. Red meat is low in <laughs> carbohydrates, high in protein. I mean, why why wouldn't you want to eat it every day? Uh, hey, Club Guy, we've done a little demographics in Wisconsin. I think it's important to kind of get yeah. a sense of uh, one more kind of good visual picture. In your neighborhood, how many above-ground pools versus in-ground pools? <laughs> I'm part of the above-ground pool middle class, for sure. We are, we are, we're in a neighborhood. I'm on a cul-de-sac. There's four houses on that cul-de-sac. There's three above-ground pools on the cul-de-sac. <laughs> so is the competition then for the deck that gets built around? I think so. I, I think so. Is that where flexing? Is that the flex? I, I My flex is that I don't have kids running around that I, so I don't have to deal with all the mess they have to. So for the political consultants listening, I mean, this would be like an appended data to the voter file. Like, oh, is yeah. This, is this you an above ground household or a below ground household? Yeah, in ground. Well, I would yeah. say, and I would say an above ground pool voter is going to lean lean Republican down ballot for sure, may vote on Trump. That in-ground pool person, I don't know. I think Trump may have lost him. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be right. interesting to see. You go up to Mequon, where you got more in-ground pools. And We're breaking ground Good here. for Trump there. Yeah. We're breaking ground yeah. here. It's not soccer moms. It's in-ground pool moms. Absolutely. <laughs> Club guy, this has been great. One of our deeper dives, we had a lot to talk about. A lot of important information from Wisconsin. A little breakdown of the debate. Explanation of what the heck a supper club is. I love it. You know, Wisconsin's going to be a big deal. So, you know, we're going to have to plan on revisiting, especially as we get closer to a general election next week. Totally. Week. You might have to tape one in a supper club in Wisconsin one of these days because I can guarantee you, you'll have no, a fight may break out over your choice of old fashioned, but I think you'd probably enjoy it. And the food is certainly up to the task. Keeping well, yeah, well, if the, if the evening begins at the bar and ends at the bar, yeah, I think I might have just it done. Then we'll go over to Club Guys Above Ground Pool, break out the cigar, all good. Oh, I love it. So, Rob, Supper Club Guy comes with a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. He's obviously in the game where we are doing the deep dive on Wisconsin. You know, we've kind of been wanting to do it for a while. Super important state, probably no more important state than this one. It was interesting. I think we got into a little bit of the detail looking ahead to next November as to why this is a very difficult state for Donald Trump to win of the swing states. The type of voters that he's talking about in the suburbs, the patrons at Johnny Manhattan's, are exactly the type of Republicans that are becoming alienated by Trump and are going to not vote or do write-ins, or possibly even vote 
for the Democrat nominee, although Joe Biden is unpopular. But this is not enough rural vote, still very urban and suburban driven. And so as you continue to hear more and more people talking about Trump struggling with suburban voters, independents and Republicans, keep Wisconsin in mind. Yeah. And I also thought it was good to hear from a political communicator on the debate last night, because what we saw last night, you know, is there a person on that stage who can actually take it to Trump, be successful and kind of turn the tide of this thing and, and actually go grab the nomination away from him? I don't know that we saw that. I would love it if we did, obviously, but it was kind of good to get that feedback as well. And he's coming out of a community that, that, you know, was kind of looking at it. Who did shut down the mini Trump on the stage last night was the one woman running. And I thought that was interesting. And maybe that portends who could actually take Trump on head to head. Yeah, I don't disagree. Well, Rob, that's it for this episode. Thanks for giving highball politics a shot. A pun is intended. You bet, Cotchell. Join us next week, everyone, as we pull up a bar stool in another politically and culturally important city, interview a bartender, and find out what the locals are drinking and what they're saying. Until then, cheers, Cotchell. Cheers, Rob. Highball Politics is a podcast presentation of Highball Media. Executive producers are David Cotchell and me, Rob Stutzman. Our producer is Miranda Perrin. Please send your bartender nominations and any questions to highballpolitics at gmail.com. And find us on social media. We're at Highball Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And if you were brave enough to make this week's signature cocktail, please remember to tag your pics of this week's with the hashtag Highball Podcast. And if you want to support our show, please subscribe to Highball Politics wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. And please share this episode with your friends. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.